Welcome back everyone to the operating list. Today's episode is a coffee chat with Dr. Ram Nataraja. Ram is an academic general pediatric surgeon working at the Monash Children's Hospital. Last week he joined us as we talked about hernia repairs and discussed laparoscopic and open techniques. So if you missed that, make sure to check it out. Today we're going a bit more broadly to talk about pediatric surgery as a specialty and the opportunities it holds. Ram is a clinician, scientist, and educator, and he is now the Director of Surgical Simulation at the Monash Children's Hospital. I'm really excited to hear him speak about his journey and how he got involved in everything he does. Today we're back and we're going to have a chat just about how you became a pediatric surgeon and a bit about what you do. Okay, great. Before we get to that, one very important question and I'm sure you've been asked this before, but if you weren't doing medicine, what do you think you'd be doing? Uh, that's a, a very good question. So I think um, I get asked this question quite a bit, and I think that it's interesting in the fact that medicine wasn't my first career choice. So I think I already know what I would be doing if I wasn't doing medicine, and that's marine biology. I was very much, uh, uh, even in the UK, um, uh, which some of you guys in Australia Asia might find it difficult to believe, but we have a quite a big diving community, so scuba diving. So I was a, a junior instructor from an early age. Uh, so from the ages of 14 onwards, I was teaching scuba diving. And we used to go diving quite regularly in around the coast in England, um, which has got some great sea life, some great kelp forests. It's got um, coral and everything. It's also got some uh, wrecks and things like that. That was my love. That was the, the real thing that I loved to do was marine biology. When it came to choosing between the different careers, you can do things called, um, uh, I'm not sure you have the equivalent in Australia, but it's a, we do a battery of MCQs. So it's aptitude testing, cognitive reasoning, all those kind of things. And I think from memory, it felt like 500 MCQs. It might have been more or less, I'm not sure. Um, but it actually came out 100% suited for medicine and 100% suited for marine biology. So that was probably a waste of money um, for, the, for my parents at the time. But the main reason why I chose medicine, and I think this is an important consideration for maybe uh, the people who are, uh, are starting their journey, is that I chose uh, medicine because I could do medicine and potentially change or have an interest in marine biology. But if I did marine biology, I couldn't, it was very difficult to then change to medical um, pathway. And I also knew fellow instructors who had uh, first class degrees in marine biology, but were unable to get a job because they were overqualified. And so certainly I thought, I don't really want to pursue something where the best that I can do will disadvantage me. So I then uh, went down the medical route and uh, then obviously found not so much in the preclinical years, but definitely in the clinical years, I found my vocation and I went from there. So I think it's... Um, Always a difficult choice, I think, to, to make that choice. But I think some people will tell you that they came straight out of the delivery room wanting to be a, a, a doctor. Um, I wasn't one of those. I think um, I knew I was a scientist. I knew I was uh, someone who was logical. And I also someone who had a creative side as well. And then I realized that actually there were careers such as in medicine and surgery where you could combine all of those things together. So um, if I wasn't in medicine, I'd probably be in marine biology somewhere at the bottom of the ocean. So. We love that. That's quite a, a different response. I don't think I've ever gotten marine biology before. So how'd you go from ocean life to little kids and pediatric surgery? Yeah, so I think um, 
again, my career wasn't quite as as a conveyor belt as other people's potentially, or rather what people admit out loud. So maybe I'm just uh, vocalizing what other people have happened to them as well. But my initial career choice was pediatric oncology. I did a extra degree during medical school, so slightly different from a BMED sci, but you do a basic science degree and I did that in molecular medicine. I worked in tumor targeting for the cancer research campaign. I wanted to become a pediatric oncologist and certainly oncology uh, interested me in the basic science of it and screening antibody fragments and doing targeted cancer therapies really appealed to me. Um, and on the basis of that, I got into one of the uh, best rotations for junior doctors for on their pathway up to oncology career uh, in London, which was great. Um, but after working uh, for the for quite as probably the first couple of years, and not even as a registrar, so just as a um, in those days we were house officers and then senior house officers. I realized I wasn't quite an oncologist. So although there were large degrees of oncology that I uh, liked. It, the medical side of things wasn't so powerful. And I think um, I then found that I enjoyed taking out the Hickman lines and putting them in and all the procedures a lot more than other things. And that's why I realized I was probably more surgically minded. And then I made the decision that, well, I still want pediatrics is still my choice. So what about pediatric surgery? So I then had a six month post. So I managed to get a job at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London as a, a junior um, part of the junior team there. And there I found a great mentor in Joe Curry, who was one of my uh, lifelong mentors. He's uh, head of department there and he's an amazing uh, pediatric surgeon. And he then mentored me through and I found other mentors like Muntha Haddad at Chelsea and Westminster, who also then nurtured me and I found my vocation in pediatric surgery. I did also, looking back on it, and I think it's interesting when you reflect on your career, is actually that um, now I'm an educationist and I know a lot more about the theory behind things and why people do what they do. Looking at my own life, I realized I had quite a negative surgical mentor during medical school. So someone who was very high, very, um, had a lot of accolades, you know, was someone you'd look up to as a medical student, but also displayed a lot of negative traits. And because of that, I actually then turned off surgery. I was actually moved away from surgery because of that experience of having someone in a position of power who I didn't necessarily respect and thought, I don't want to be like them. I'm going down a different route. So I think that's why it's important for these kind of discussions, because I think that I now, from my own experience, believe that as the generation of surgeons, we need to give positive experiences to medical students and for people and junior surgeons to actually change the uh, culture. And there's a lot more work that needs to be done in Australia than in the UK in this culture. But in terms of uh, inequality, in terms of accessibility, in terms of the changing the general mentality of surgeons that has been put up with for many years. So I think it's important to realize that, uh, and Joe summed this up once to me, he said, he said, um, there's two things you learn in training. The first one is how to do things. And that's what you come, that's what you do. But the other thing you learn is how not to do things. And I think that's an important differentiator to make that when you do, because I think certainly as a medical student, if you're anything like me, you kind of look up to your, everyone who's a consultant in positions of power and you can model bad behavior as well as good behavior. And I think it's important to uh, know about that. Um, so I think the, for me, for pediatric surgery, and this is a vocation, um, it's not a job. I love my job. It's what I, you know, it's very much a part of who I am and what I do. Um, and I found it by um, 
basically trying different things. And so one of the advice I'll give to people is don't be too set in what you want to do and seek out opportunities, get a job in a speciality, speak to people within the speciality. And that's another advice I was given by Munther is, um, uh, you know, you do want to, are you sure you want to do pediatric surgery? So fresh face, you know, uh, PGY3, I was like, yes, definitely hundred percent. I want to do it. He said, well, have a think about whether you want to do it when you're a consultant. And I thought that's a bit of weird because as a consultant, you'd be trained, you'd be doing all the exciting stuff. So why wouldn't you love it? Um, but he said, well, you're going to be in hospital more often than your adult colleagues. So we're a very uh, consultant driven speciality. So I, I'm in hospital more often than a lot of the adult specialities or a lot of my other consultant colleagues. But when I am in hospital in the middle of the night, it's because there's a sick neonate. There's a baby that is in life-threatening condition that I need to operate on. And so that I don't mind getting out of bed. I don't mind actually doing that because that to me is enough value. Maybe not for other people and that's fine. You all need to find the thing that drives you. But for me, that's fine. So, you know, whereas otherwise, if actually that doesn't resonate, then things like a, a, a career where um, the encores are not so onerous. So I won't probably name specialities to, in, the, in the effort of tribalism, but there are specialities that you won't be called in the middle of the night and where there are very few emergencies. And if there are emergencies, the majority of them can be dealt with by phone advice rather than having to spend four hours in the hospital doing an operation. So I think that it's, um, think about where, why you want to do it speak to people within it, get experience within that career, but then also think about, do you still want to do it in 20 years time and look at and talk to people about their experience when they are in that point? It's a very good question to ask ourselves. And I always find it so interesting when I hear these stories to see how much people's choices and what fields they want to go into is influenced by who they work with and the people in that team. And that varies so much from people to people and from placement to placement. So I think an important question to ask is because every specialty has very different schedules, lifestyles, and all of that, what is a typical day in your life like? <laughs> uh, I have been asked that before, and I still don't know the answer to it. So I guess the uh, typical day, and the, the reason why I can't ask that is because um, I'm an academic pediatric surgeon. So I'm the director of simulation at Monash Children's Hospital. I run external simulation programs uh, with the WHO and other big organizations. So my day is balancing uh, those kind of educational spheres and things I need to direct and, and be in that role with clinical caregiving. So theater and uh, clinics and things like that. And then also clinical research. So supervising students, uh, PhDs, masters, uh, BMS size and reviewing papers and all those other things that go through. So I have three very big spheres that I always seem to be juggling. Um, I think that um, my typical day though, uh, usually involves teaching. So I'm very, uh, obviously, very driven with education. So I'll teach the junior staff, so the residents and the registrars. Uh, we typically have three to four hours structured teaching per week. So um, that's something we're known for at Monash, where we have quite a good structured teaching. And we also involve the medical students with that. So um, although it's very much a postgraduate speciality, you can build up the questions. So we sort of ask the opening questions, more basic medical students, and then going up through the residents uh, to the registrars as we go. 
And then usually, usually have two or three clinics a week. So, um, and those clinics can vary from post-operative ones, new patients, complex clinics, um, and also FDU, so the fetal diagnostic unit. So I've got a quite a big practice in that. And that uh, we talked about um, consent issues in, in, uh, previously. And I think that it gets even harder to talk to a parent who haven't even delivered their child yet. Um, and, and they've got something abnormal on the ultrasound scan, which is why you're seeing them. So that's a skill in itself. And then I typically have about three or four theater lists. So where we deliver care and that tends to vary. I'm also involved in MDTs, uh, which follow, follow in. Uh, but I'm lucky in the fact that um, I've designed and built our simulation department in the main hospital. So we're very lucky that our educational precinct for surgical sim is actually in the theatre complex. So it actually allows me to juggle things. So between cases, uh, between activities, I then check in with the team, which is literally in the same complex. And we can get things moving, give feedback as needed and go from there. But I think the other thing to say is that I never have the same day. And for me, that's something I love. Uh, I like to know what I'm doing, obviously, ahead of time. Um, so it's not the unpredictability, but no one week looks the same for me. The conditions are different. The operations are different. We also do weeks on call. So we cancel our elective uh, capability. So we're just delivering emergency care. And that can be anything from a week where we're dealing just with appendicitis to where we're dealing with very complex congenital abnormalities in babies. But that variance is something that drives me. I like that. There's everything's a challenge. Um, everything's new. I saw a baby in clinic last week, which despite being a consultant for nearly 10 years and being training for must have been about eight years before that pediatric surgery I've never seen I've got no idea what it is it's not in the textbooks at all I've shown it to a couple of colleagues who also have never seen it and that's one of the joys I have I have to do something about it so I'm imaging it and trying to work through things and I will get it fixed but that's I don't think there's many other jobs where you can say there's something I would never have seen again there's things where people can say there's something very rare and you don't see it that often, or it's a, a combination of different symptoms and stuff together. But this baby's got a perineal tumor um, that looks like an additional scrotum, which is just bizarre, with, with, which extends into the perineum. So it's going to be a very strange congenital tumor of some kind. And probably it may be a new tumor, because I've certainly no one's ever described it before. But that keeps it interesting. So when, you, when you're dealing with the uh, the appendixes and the hernias and the basic stuff that we do, you have these cases which make you stop and think. But it was also great that you research. So you look on PubMed, you talk to other colleagues, you then investigate and you try and look into these things and really unpick them as well, which uh, for me, probably more where my brain is wired. That variance is something that I love. Um, and that's what we get in pediatric surgery because um, we are the last two general surgeons. Yeah, there'd be so much variety and that does sound very interesting. Do you have, and I know this is a tricky question, a favourite surgery to do? <laughs> favourite surgery to do? Um, so I enjoy operating um, and I get very good results. Uh, we all get complications as we all do, but uh, I'd like to think and certainly we have quite a good uh, uh, clinical governance network. So I know that, um, you know, generally... Yeah, over 90%, if not more, of my patients have good outcomes, which is great. Um, and the ones that don't have recognized complications. So um, I like to think I'm relatively good at what I do, although I'm sure there's many areas I can improve on. And um, there's many surgeons who are better than me. But 
the the one thing is that I don't really have a favorite surgery. So I think that it's a big responsibility to take a baby and take a baby off the parents to take them to theater and do them. Um, so I enjoy getting good results. I enjoy the technical nature of the job, but I don't enjoy having to do a major operation on a baby. So I'd rather not have to do it. I'd rather that they're fine and that they can be all right. So um, I enjoy the after effects of it, but any major operation, which is the things that people would enjoy, like an esophageal atresia um, is a, uh, one of the high-end operations that we do in a baby. Uh, we take the esophagus off the trachea, we fix the esophagus up. High-risk surgery, um, uh, very technically challenging. I enjoy doing them. Um, but at all the time, I'm always aware of every single complication that could happen because that makes you safe. So to always think of the worst case scenario and put measures in place to minimize that makes you safe. So I think for true enjoyment, you can't have that. You have to completely lose yourself within it. So enjoyment saying being at a concert and listening to music, you can forget everything else that's around you and you just get completely immersed within that. So although I like to think I'm good at what I do and I enjoy the results and seeing the outcomes of my technical skill, I don't really 100% enjoy operations. I do them because I'm good at them and that's what I do and I'm trained to do them. But it's not like it's enjoyment per se. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it does. I think that's actually a very nice answer and a very good point to keep in mind as well. So you were trained in the UK. Yes. Well, training was probably a little bit different, but how? what are the general steps to becoming a paediatric surgeon and then also a neonatal surgeon? Yeah. So um, remarkably, they're pretty similar. Um, if you ask the UK or the Australasian systems, they say they're, they're different. Um, but they have the same principles running through them and they just call things differently, but they're very, very similar. Um, so uh, both systems are now competency based. So they got work based assessments that they will go through. Uh, the Australasian system seems to like uh, small rodents that so they're called mouses and things like that. So a mouse is a measured uh, observation of surgical expertise, whereas in England they're called work-based assessments where you look at an operative, so an operative work-based assessment. Uh, so they're both very similar. Uh, Time-wise, they're very similar as well um, in the fact that they're uh, usually six to seven years in terms of actual paediatric surgical training, usually rotation through different centres. So the maximum kind of two years at each centre, and that's you have to do. Um, there's a lot of hidden curriculum in paediatric surgery, and that's where a lot of the evidence base isn't established yet. So centres tend to do what they do, which, and yes, they get very good results with it, and that's why they do it. But as a trainee, you need to go into other centers to see what they do, because they may do something completely different and get other results. And then actually, as a trainee, it's a drawing all those different experiences from different centers together to form what you're going to do. But if you just stay in one place, you get very tunneled vision, which isn't actually um, helpful for the patient because I draw experience from everywhere else. For paediatric surgery, we tend to do general surgery as well. So adult general surgery, um, uh, different specialities which we bring forward. And that's usually before we get onto the training program in the UK. Um, and that's now become normal in Australia as well. So that's now they've decoupled it. So it's moving more towards the UK system. We also tend to do neonatal intensive care. So this is actually where we uh, become a neonatal junior. So on the ward where we're actually just neonatal, not surgical at all. Um, but that really, our sickest patients are on the neonatal intensive care unit. Unless you've worked there, know a bit about ventilation, know about the machines, it's a very confronting environment. So when you're assessing a baby who's 500 grams with, you know, 
probably uh, um, more tubes coming from them weight-wise than they actually weigh themselves. With loads of machines and pumps and everything, if you, it can be very confronting to make an objective clinical assessment of them. But if you actually worked on an intensive care unit in neonates, you know what everything is, you're comfortable there, you can then make objective uh, statements. And it also gives you a close idea of the risks we put babies through and the timing of surgery and all those kind of things. So that's probably different from other surgical specialities where it's very desirable to have a neonatal or pediatric uh, sole experience uh, rather than just pediatric surgery. And then generally speaking, we always um, advocate for a uh, position within pediatric surgery itself and that's before you get on the training program as which basically links to what i was saying to try it um, and some people just when they try it same like with me with oncology doesn't match up to the image that they had in their head kind of thing that you piece together from speaking to mentors and things like that so it's always important to try it before you then embark on the next six seven years of your life i think they'll be very useful to a lot of the students listening who might be interested in going into one of these fields. We've talked quite a bit about the clinical side of things, but you're also very involved in academics and research and something that I find very interesting, the simulations. Can you tell us a little bit about them and how you got involved or what you do? Uh, yes, so, um, so I guess academically, we run a lot of clinical trials. So we're running quite a few randomized controlled trials at Monash Children's Hospital. And that's where we're getting to the point in the golden age of pediatric surgery where kids are now surviving. Mentors of mine, Ed Kiley and uh, Lewis Spitz, who've written quite a few textbooks, and I call them at the tail end of their career, they were in the area where they just made up operations because the mortality rate was 60%. So they had to do something for the baby and they invented an operation. But now we get really good outcomes. So, you know, generally speaking, even for complex um, congenital conditions, we're expecting a survival rate of over 90%. So we're now thinking ahead and we're thinking about quality of life. We're thinking about long-term issues, minimization of complications and things like that, which is why we're now moving towards establishing the evidence base and thinking more uh, beyond the fact, can we just get a baby to survive to actually the golden age where, you know, can we really improve this child for the rest of their life? So, so certainly we're, we're investigating that and sometimes establishing uh, things that we kind of know work, but we have never examined them in a proper trial. Um, so we're looking at washouts versus not for uh, complex appendicitis at the moment. And we're doing that with six other centers in Australia. And that's going to answer the question because people either do one or the other. So the clinical side of things is important because we need to establish our evidence base. We're behind in pediatric surgery, but everything should be evidence-based practice. So that's where we're going. In terms of simulation-based um, education, so I have two spheres. I have surgical and medical and then more theoretical practice. So for the surgical, I designed with Joe one of the first bench trainers for laparoscopic surgery uh, in 2002. And this was... Um, it took us a few years to get it published, where we got reviews back from the, not from the reviewers, but from the editors saying, this is nonsense. You don't train surgeons uh, like this. You train them in the operating theatre. We're not even considering this. To now, I'm now <laughs> running a national training course with laparoscopic simulators in surgical trainees' houses while I'm monitoring them with uh, motion tracking software, giving them feedback on my online curriculum and going from there. So we've certainly come a very long way in my short career so far. Um, but surgical simulation and simulation as in simulation-based education is a safe environment where people can acquire skills, 
gain competency and actually get feedback before going to have patient care. So previously we'd learn see one, do one, teach one. Uh, it's a very Halstidian approach where we would learn on patients. We now don't have to. Better for the patients, obviously, but also better for the trainees and the fact that you can actually be in a safe environment, get feedback, experiment and get better all within a very, without any patient harm and without the pressure of that happening. But see one, do one, teach one is still around. And one of the, William Halstead was one of the founding fathers of the John Hopkins Institute in America. And he changed a lot of things. And that was his uh, hallmark for education. And um, it always amuses me that people hang on to it still um, because the other things that he championed were the use of anesthetics, um, using gloves when you operated, um, using anesthetic solutions to clean the skin before you operated and not wearing aprons and trying to be a bit more sterile when you actually did things. So when you look at those kind of things that he was also championing, we kind of think, well, those are just crazy. They're out there. You know how you wouldn't even consider doing that now. Yet some people still hang on to those principles. So the new generation coming through will have simulation and it's already getting integrated into the curriculum. And it's a great way where you can use your own time. You can gather your own pace, pick up all the skills that you need before going to a patient. Not all of them. It will never replace, it will only augment. Um, but it means that, say, with our laparoscopic hernia repair model, one of uh, the feedback from one of my trainees uh, was that, say, there's 10 steps to it. There's uh, two or three that we can't simulate. But when she, when she went to do the operation, she said it was so much easier in the patient because seven out of 10 steps she didn't have to think about. So her whole concentration was based on those three steps rather than having to worry about the 10 steps. So it's actually improving patient care, but also for uh, the person itself. But we're using technology. We're using hololenses, which is quite exciting. We're dropping holograms onto visual fields and operative fields. We're using them to motion track hands as well. So I can motion track laparoscopic instruments, but now I can motion track hands of surgeons as they operate using a hololens, which is a uh, mixed reality headset by Microsoft. So we're at the fun time where technology is advancing, where we're incorporating it into training. Um, and this gives you objective uh, feedback as well. So a lot of surgery was based on an expert watching a performance and going, ah, oh, that's all right. Yeah, maybe that's okay, do this. Um, whereas now we can actually quantify it and give real data for patients as well and for their learners. That sounds so cool. It's like all the sci-fi things coming to life. How do you decide how you're gonna, what you're gonna base the simulations on? Do you base them off real patients or is it off textbooks and anatomy? Yeah. So um, good question. And certainly we do do uh, so procedure specific ones. Um, so like the inguinal hernia repair or laparoscopic pilo, uh, myotomy for pyloxenosis. But we also do uh, questions uh, and focuses towards the essential skills. So say with laparoscopic surgery, um, there's skills that you use that you don't use for open surgery. That's the 2D to 3D realization because you're looking at a computer screen or a monitor. Um, you're away from the instruments, they're longer. You have a fulcrum effect. When you move your hand right, it goes left. Um, depth perception is different. Um, the, uh, you lose your haptic feedback because you're using an instrument which is you know, 30 centimeters away rather than anything else. Um, and those kind of things can be taught in a laparoscopic trainer before you get to a patient, but they don't look like a patient. So, 
stacking up dice, um, transferring hoops from one thing to another laparoscopically, folding up bits of paper laparoscopically. All of those teach you the skills which actually can make you a better laparoscopic surgeon, although they're not actually teaching you uh, things. So um, I always joke because in pediatrics, you never know, but you might, you know, one day I might have to actually remove dice from a child's abdomen if they've swallowed them, but they're not things that you actually do or have to do, but they teach you the skills. So what we tend to do is when I look at a procedure is I look at what are the essential skills that I need for that procedure and how can I teach that more effectively? and accessibly, and for me, low cost as well uh, with my work in low middle income countries. So we can actually translate it with uh, things that cost dollars to make and not a hundred thousand like my high tech, um, high technology mannequins that I use as well. So it's basically about looking at a task that I want to teach, and that can be a common task for the juniors or a rare task that doesn't happen that often. So we don't get that constant caseload through look at the individual tasks and the steps to it, and then see how I can actually uh, teach those skills in a simulated environment. And usually it's not all of them. And I think that certainly, uh, you know, even 20 years ago, we used to want to recreate things exactly how they looked. So how did things look? And we, it didn't, wasn't worthwhile unless it looked exactly like it was meant to. But now we know that's not the case. It's about um, having um, uh, the task and actually breaking them up that way. If you could learn anything at the moment, if you could take a holiday and pick one thing that you really wanted to learn, what would you be learning? Well, that's a great question. Um, medically, it'd probably be more robotic surgery, I think. But I think that I would love to get back into diving as well. I think so. If I had a sabbatical, I'd probably do some uh, hyperbaric medicine. And I think that that's also something that is combining uh, two of my uh, loves together. What else would I like to learn? It's difficult because I feel like I'm a lifelong learner, which is what we should all be. But I only recently, so this year, completed my master's in surgical education. So I've, uh, I think this is the first time in my life I've not actually been a student, which considering I've been qualified for 20 odd years, seems a bit funny to say. But I think I've always continually learning. And I think that one of the things I'd like to do is to obviously post-COVID, hopefully, is actually go around other pediatric surgical centers in America and just watch and just observe. Observe the word, their processes, their techniques and things that they do. Because um, in that, I can get inspiration for incorporating or adapting novel techniques that other people use in other centers. We talked about different pediatric surgical centers doing things differently. And then I could potentially incorporate some of that back into my own as well. Um, so I think that would be, would be key. And I think probably outside medicine, um, I used to love snowboarding uh, during medical school and I haven't been since medical school. So that's probably something where I'd like to try and take that up again. Yeah, a bit harder in Australia and don't have snow right outside our door. But hopefully once COVID dies down a bit, we can all go traveling again. Bringing me to another topic, which is how do you find balance in life and how do you rewind at the end of the day? Yeah, so I think um, balance is incredibly powerful um, and I think it's key. Um, I think that you have to learn to switch off. I think you have to have buffer zones as well. So um, I used to be very bad about working at weekends and things like that on various things, but uh, you can make it work. So I used to 
usually write papers on a Sunday afternoon for two or three hours, which sort of fitted in. Um, so we used to obviously go out on Saturday night and see friends and things, potentially have a lie-in, and then I'll do some work, and then we'll go out for uh, a proper British thing, which is a late, lazy Sunday lunch and meet mates as well. But you can fit it in, and it's all about actually time management more than anything else. Uh, with kids now, I tend to um, ring fence time. Um, so I uh, tend to uh, not work at the weekends anymore and just spend time with them unless I'm on call. Um, and I think that's something that's very important to do. Um, using uh, different techniques, whichever ones resonates with you to actually unwind as well. So I meditate and I do Qigong and Tai Chi as well. And I think that those uh, techniques are very important. We uh, all of us in medicine work in a very emotionally friable speciality, some more than others. Um, and oncology and peace surgery are obviously some of the, the key ones. And it's a fine balance between uh, being having enough empathy to connect with your patients, but not too much that you actually then harm yourself. Because if you get too involved with patients and have too much uh, engagement, then you're not able to do your job anymore. So um, I can't operate on a baby if I'm constantly thinking, you know, what's, uh, you know, that this is going to go horribly wrong. What am I doing? You need to have that confidence and, and a barrier and a, and a shield to do that. Um, so you need to unwind. And that could be anything. It could be any of the mindful techniques people are, are now championing. It can be going for a run. It can be going for a swim and it can be doing those kind of things. And what I mean by buffers is not to... Uh, go straight from work into another activity, but just 10, spend even 10 minutes, just spending time, just centering yourself, getting back out of the rut, getting, you know, just sort of going down, debriefing with a friend, um, phoning a colleague and having a rant about what's just happened to you during the day. So when you do get home, you're fresh and it doesn't translate into that, um, I think is important. Um, and I think that, um, uh, bear in mind that sort of family life and um, work life is very uh, difficult sometimes to maintain, but I think it's very vital to do that. You can't do your work life properly without a good balance and uh, mechanisms to unwind, um, which is actually better in Australasia. So one of the reasons I emigrated here um, was the fact that in London, the work-life balance wasn't as great. I was spending 45 minutes to an hour commuting over London in the morning and the evening, and it was busy. And so most of the week would be knocked out, whereas now I live a 10 to 15 minute drive from the hospital. And I'm able to come home in time to cook dinner and spend time with the kids, whereas in London I was coming home if I was lucky by 7.38, which is, you know, getting too late. And then you've got to get up early in the morning. So choosing your situation, uh, finding jobs that resonate with you. And that could be in a rural setting. Uh, it could be uh, if uh, you have other things that are important to you in life, like sports to a high level, things like that. To actually, you can nowadays forge your way a bit more. Um, Part-time working is very much accepted now. Um, surgery still takes a little bit, but we're getting there. And I think that we need to, to enable that because I think that space is very key for people to do that. Um, and in paediatric surgery, we're probably better than other surgical specialities, although we could all improve on that. Um, so I think it's about finding what's important to you, keeping variance and not just doing the one thing. 
but having outlets to unwind, whatever that may be for you, because we live in a stressful world, we live in stressful jobs. As medics, you will have a more stressful career than uh, other people. Um, uh, other people do have stressful days. I think, you know, even a uh, checkout person will have a stressful day where people are not particularly nice to them. So um, and it's having that outlet that you don't carry at home or you don't uh, take it to work. And those are very important as well. I really love that. And I'm going to start thinking about how I can include little buffers in everyday life. Because I think it's so important to just have a moment to reset so we can face everything with a fresh mind. Especially when some of the days in the hospital can be quite emotionally demanding. So thanks for sharing that little piece of advice. Now, as we come to the end of our chat, I'll leave a little opportunity for you if you have any messages you'd like to share with the students listening to the episode. Yeah, so I think... um First thing I would say is that you guys are amazing. So never forget the fact that you're at medical school. You've already gone through so many hurdles to get you where you are today. So always believe in yourself. Um, always follow the career path. I think that uh, once you made your mind up on something, find mentors, find people to enable things for you. Um, but don't lose sight of your vocation. But always remember the amazing things that you've done to get to this point. Always remember that you will see positive behavior and negative behavior and always try and differentiate between the two. Often it's difficult to sometimes and our natural response is to try and blend in and adopt behaviors because that's what you know people that we respect or we think we respect have. So always stay true to your core uh, being, but also stay true to what you want to do. So if you really want to do something and it doesn't happen, don't be knocked back, change your tact, look for other opportunities, look for other people that may enable those things for you and reach out and have an open mind. But also know uh, when to quit. And uh, what I mean by quit is not medicine, um, but things where sometimes I've seen people far too fixed on one particular career and it's just not working and they just keep on going down the pathway where actually they could change. And then I've seen that with other people where they do change careers or in terms of medicine uh, to go down a different speciality and they're just so much happier. Um, so always have that in the back of your mind that how and put a time limit on it, you know. Because you are, you will be able to do it usually with enough uh, drive and enough en enablers. But how much time do you actually want to spend on it? You know, how long do you really want to do it? Do you want to be a PGY 10, you know, still scrabbling around for things? Or do you want to actually think, well, well, PGY 10, I actually want to be a consultant doing something, or I want to be a general practitioner, you know, nicely settled, and I want to have my own house, and I want to have, you know, stability within my life. So really think about the balance of where what you want to do and believe in it but never forget the amazing things and the hurdles that you've done to get to this point you are the best of the best to get in and to go through medical school so never forget that you will you will achieve things if you put your mind to it that's a lovely inspirational note to end on thank you so much for taking time out of your day and very busy schedule to have a chat to us all and i think everyone would have found this very interesting and I certainly have learned a lot from it. No problem at all. Thanks for the invitation.